1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Comedians used to be outside the political establishment, looking in and poking fun. But there's been a blurring of the lines. Politicians crack jokes, and increasingly, comedians get into politics. Easy laughs, it seems, are a secret weapon for populists. And in Pakistan, there are tens of thousands of completely unqualified doctors practicing medicine. The government is trying to crack down on them, but it's clear that people would rather be treated by a quack than by no one at all. First up, though, When a summary of the Mueller report was released last month, it was either a huge relief or a colossal anticlimax, depending on your point of view.
2: There was no collusion with Russia, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. There was no collusion with Russia.
1: After 22 months investigating the Russian campaign to rig the 2016 election in Donald Trump's favor, special counsel Robert Mueller declined to recommend charging the president with anything.
2: After so many people have been so badly hurt, after not looking at the other side...
1: Mr. Trump gleefully tweeted that the report was a complete and total exoneration. It wasn't quite that. The report itself did not make a call on whether Mr. Trump had a charge to answer about obstructing justice, that is, trying to impede the Russia investigation. Today, a bit more light may be shed on these questions. A redacted version of Mr. Mueller's full report is due to be released it could add some
3: nuance to what his investigation has already uncovered. We should get a lot more detail, and that'll help us understand a couple of things. The main one is it'll help us understand why Robert Mueller reached his conclusion that nobody in the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government. John Priddo is The Economist's United States editor. He
1: spent months poring over hundreds of pages of documents and reports gradually published by the special counsel.
3: But it's also worth remembering, Jason, that over the course of this two-year investigation, several people who worked on the campaign were convicted of various crimes, which is unprecedented. I think it
1: stands to reason that the the biggest focus will,
3: will be on the things that are not in the report. This is still
1: a redacted report, and there are still sort of queries around what will have been removed and immediately questions about why anything was removed. What do you think the most consequential thing could be to come out of the report in the form that we're going to see it?
3: I don't know yet, and the only people who do know are those who work on the Mueller inquiry but what I can tell you is what we're planning to do here with this report which is basically ignore all the kind of instant hot takes which will have been written by people who haven't read it uh, read the whole thing at least, and sit down and go through all 400 pages. And what we'll be looking for really is information that's not already out there.
1: But I mean, it, it's it's worth asking whether you think there, are, uh, there will be bombshells or is this going to be looking under the carpets and seeing if we can find little crumbs that haven't yet been spotted?
3: Well, so it's hard to know what a bombshell is these days. You know, we've become used to extraordinary things happening over the course of this investigation. Lots of little bits have been revealed, completely extraordinary stuff. The president's campaign manager you know, indicted on his way to prison for various crimes. So, you know, A, what's a bombshell? B, I suspect there's a there's got to be a decent chance, I don't know, 20% chance to pluck a number out of the air that there's something in there that feels like a very, very big deal. I don't think there's going to be anything, thing, you know, presidency ending or anything like that. So people need to manage their expectations of this a little bit. There's probably a, a larger chance that most of what we know has already come out in the indictments. And there's nothing that changes the story very much compared with where we were when Attorney General William Barr released his summary a couple of weeks ago. Well, he's also
1: the one who's been in charge of of making these redactions, and there's already talk, uh, including from a federal judge, about wanting to know more, what's still hidden. What's your sense for whether the public, or Congress anyway, will get to see more of this report?
3: It depends on how heavy William Barr has been with his Sharpie. If when the report comes out, there's a lot of it is crossed out and it's basically legible, then I think people will say, hang on, this isn't what we were expecting. This isn't the disclosure that we were promised. I mean, there are, just to recap, some legally sound reasons why the report is redacted. You know, one is that there's a need to protect intelligence sources. Another is a convention around information obtained by a grand jury that it won't just be released. And third, there are kind of plain privacy concerns, and all of those are judgment calls made by William Barr. Now, there's a question over whether he's, you know, the best referee to make those calls, um, and we can say some things about that if you'd like. But if he's been, as I say, if he's been too heavy with the Sharpie, I think there'll be a further fight about whether more can be disclosed than, than will be disclosed today. Let's talk about um, Mr. Barr and the degree to which he's the,
1: the, the right man for the job on the redactions.
3: Well, there are two things I'd say on that, and they kind of point in opposite directions, so you can take your pick. On the one hand, for a Trump appointee, he doesn't seem particularly beholden to Mr. Trump. I mean, compared with the standard of the kind of average high-profile Trump appointee, he's got you know, long history in the law, long history serving in Republican governments. He's, you know, in some senses, a kind of establishment conservative sort of person. On the other direction, I would say that before he became Attorney General, he sent this 19-page unsolicited memo to the Department of Justice, making a very broad case for a kind of expansive view of, of executive authority, the view that the president legally gets to do kind of more or less whatever he wants, and specifically saying that the Mueller investigation was fatally fatally misconceived. And um, so given, you know, given that past, I think it's not unreasonable to to question whether he's um, the fairest possible referee when it comes to deciding what gets redacted and what doesn't. The fight over the redactions
1: in the report, the fight over who made those redactions and so on, this this does not look like the end of the story at all. And in fact, the, the suggestion uh, leveled at Democrats that they'll never be happy, um, it, it seems like that's kind of coming to fruition in the sense that they're not going to be happy until they see a completely open report. How long do you think this kind of thing will drag on or will that we must call it now? This is the report, job done.
3: I think that's a very fair question and it's a good one. I mean, what I've learned from a couple of years of covering this story is that there's a huge desire for a kind of cathartic moment where we can say, okay, this is it, end of story. We can draw a line through that and move on to something else. And this story... Resists that you know it doesn 't give us that cathartic moment, as you say, if the report is heavily redacted, people will you know the debate among some people will then be about you know the redactions and whether those are legally justified and whether there can be you know cases brought around those i mean for for political purposes, I think most of America will not be hugely interested in a debate about the legalities of various redactions. But you're right for the obsessives. I don't think the report will necessarily be the end of the story. Well, and I think a lot of people um, were surprised by how much of the revelations that have come out haven't really
1: dented Mr. Trump's popularity.
3: Yes. So the third law of Trumpo dynamics is that nothing much budges the president's approval rating. It's been bumbling around in the low 40s among the general public for a long time. It barely moved when the bar summary of the Mueller report came out. Among Republicans, it's obviously very different, approval in the high 80s. So I'd be surprised if anything comes out of this that changes people's mind. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason.
1: Sometimes, when you watch President Donald Trump in front of a crowd, you wonder whether he thinks he's doing stand-up.
2: The Green New Deal, right? Green New Deal. When the wind stops blowing, that's the end of your electric. Let's hurry up. Darling? Darling, is the wind blowing today? I'd like to watch television, darling.
1: You have the mean gags, usually aimed at the Democrats. They're
2: going to cover Pocahontas? She of the great... Tribal heritage. What tribe is it? Uh let me think about that one. I said, General, come here, give me a kiss.
1: <laughs> I felt like Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. But not always.
2: Michelle Obama gives a speech, and everyone loves it. It's fantastic. They think she's absolutely great. My wife Melania. Gives the exact same speech. And people get on her case.
1: Mr. Trump is not the only one. There's a clown car full of politicians turned comedians and comedians turned politicians. Polls predict that this Sunday, Ukrainians will elect as president a comedian and actor with no political experience. Specific. That is, aside from playing a school teacher turned president in the hit comedy show Servant of the People. And he's in good company. In Italy, comedian Beppe Grillo founded the Five Star Movement. It's now the largest individual party in government and part of the ruling coalition. Last year, Slovenia elected a satirist, Marianne Sarec, as prime minister. And in 2015, Guatemala chose comedian and
4: caricaturist Jimmy Morales to be president. There was a time when comedy and politics were two discrete and very distinct professions. Richard Cockett is a senior editor at The Economist. That began to change in the 1960s. Most people attribute this to Richard Nixon. In 1968, he appeared on a comedy show called Laughing, and he looked straight at the camera and said, Suck it to me! <laughs> But things really started to change after 2008 with the financial crisis. What happened, I think, is that comedians managed to channel the sense of outrage, disappointment, uh, revolution against all those kind of responsible, pompous politicians who said they were all doing the right thing. People wanted to take them down with a bump, and that's what comedians are good at. And so
1: it is then that the comedian turned politician
4: has an advantage in the post-financial
1: crisis world.
4: That's right. John Gennar, the comedian who became the mayor of Reykjavik in 2010, he put it best. He said, when the going gets funny, the funny gets going. And why is it
1: advantageous for politicians to dabble
4: in comedy? Politicians like it because it's become a shortcut to public approval and a wider audience. For example, British politician Boris Johnson, a leading Brexiteer, former foreign secretary, but his persona in the public mind derives entirely from his work hosting the British equivalent of Saturday Night Live called Have I Got News For You? It is, it's shocking. It is shocking. It is I mean, shocking. it's certainly
3: not something you lot would do.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not aware
4: of, I'm not aware of that David Cameron. You're not aware pushing. of anything much. No, <laughs> I think it's a bit early for you to start it on me on this yeah, show, yeah. I, think, I think it's steady on. And this established his persona as a sort of buffoonish, self mocking, fun bloke who could relate to ordinary people. I'm trying to think of a way of, of bringing in my
1: book. <laughs> 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 What's your book you called? Bob? Well, oh. since you mentioned it, here it is.
4: So rather than sort of boring people with policy pronouncements and earnest TV debates, Boris was making jokes. And if he becomes prime minister, as he may do after Theresa May, he'll owe that position as much or even more to his gifts as a comedian, his comic background, as to anything he's ever said about politics. So these comedians
1: turned politicians, politicians turned comedic figures, is there anything that you see in common between them in terms of the the kind of humor that they use?
4: I identify two distinct kinds of humor, and comedians often refer to them too. One is the type of comedy that punches up, and that's a sort of irreverent comedy where basically you're taking the mickey out of people in power bring them down to earth, if you like. But there's a second sort of humour, which has an equally strong tradition, which comedians call punching down, which is basically an abuse of power. So you're taking advantage of your platform, your mandate as a politician or as a powerful person with your own TV show, etc., to take the mickey out of people who are more defenseless, who are lower down, perhaps your socioeconomic pecking order. Trump, of course, does this a lot. He's mocked immigrants, Mexico. Americans, disabled people.
2: Written by a nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Ah, oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. Oh, maybe that's what I said. This is 14 and years ago.
4: And I He's think still- that borders on cruelty. Jimmy Morales, who is now the president of Guatemala, he made his name as a comic by a blackface impersonation. No <laughs> le which is just <laughs>
0: incredibly
4: racist. That would certainly not get an airing on, say, European or American TV at any time of a night and day. And yet that's what made him famous in Guatemala and propelled him to for presidency. And I think that's a sort of comedy vein which is associated a lot, unfortunately, with the modern populist movements. It's an expression, if you like, of another tradition which they feel was disdained by the more educated middle class elites that they are trying to bring down. And it also gives them another advantage which I call plausible deniability by sort of blurring all the boundaries between comedy and politics. They can say outrageous things and then turn around the next minute and say, hey, can't you take a joke? I was only kidding. And again, Trump does that quite a lot.
1: Plainly, some some of these comedy-associated politicians and politics-associated comedians aren't funny. Are there any that you find absolutely hilarious?
4: The present generation – I think leave a lot to be desired. Now, if Steve Colbert ran for president, which it has been rumored he might do, I think he'd make a very good, funny president. Right. So we have a comedian who you want to go into politics. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, John Gunnar, I must say, he's my favorite comedian term politician. He managed actually to retain his humor and do some good things for Iceland and Reykjavik.
1: Well, I mean, that that's the question. If it's a political tool for some people, the degree to which they're kind of walking a line between being taken seriously and being seen as the clown because that's a defining feature, I mean, what on balance do you think tends to happen?
4: Well, it's a very recent trend, this. So, I think the third dick's out. I mean, John Gunnar is, I think, an example of a comedian who probably did as well as any serious, so-called serious politician. What my an th- embarrassment to serious an politicians. embarrassment to serious politicians, <laughs> exactly. I mean, my fear is that very conservative forces, I use that with a small c, forces that want to maintain the status quo, adopt or co-opt a politician to put a sort of funny veneer on very regressive policies. That could be the case in Guatemala where Jimmy Morales is in charge of a government which are doing a lot of things to roll back quite progressive and helpful policies put in by their predecessors. Zelensky, the Ukrainian comedian turned politician who might win the Ukrainian presidency soon, he could turn out to be one of those as well. A useful idiot, if you like. And I leave the verdict on Trump to work out for Yourself,
1: For the historians, for perhaps. The historians,
4: yeah.
1: Richard, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I've been asking our journalists to drop by with numbers that they've come across in the course of their reporting. Today, it's Edward
5: McBride, our Asia editor. Edward, what number have you brought us? Jason, today for you, I have the number 70,000 to 80,000, really more of a range. It's a range, yeah. I just wanted a number. But okay, Um, 70,000 to 80,000, what? That is the conservative end of the estimate of how many completely unqualified doctors are practicing medicine in Punjab province in Pakistan. When I say the conservative end... If you count all the people who you know, have some qualification to count pills in a pharmacy but are out there giving injections and dispensing other kinds of medicine that they're not qualified to to hand out, the number would be even higher. But however you cut it, the province of Punjab and all of Pakistan has a terrible problem with phony doctors. Practicing all kinds of medicine. Well, basically they're acting as, as, as GPs. You know? P- people go from the neighborhood to the local quack he hands out pills, maybe some injections. I mean one very popular treatment is a sort of pick-me-up steroid injection for almost any complaint. Pick-me-up steroid injection. Do I, do I no, need one of those? <laughs> we all do. It sounds jaunty, but it is a terrible problem, right? I mean, one of the problems is they're often using the wrong medicines. They might make people sicker. But even worse, they might use a dirty syringe. They might help to spread diseases, hepatitis, AIDS, you know, all kinds of blood diseases. And the quack doctors, obviously, not being real doctors, they may not spot important things such as outbreaks of, of communicable diseases that the government would very much like to know about and might be able to stop the spread of if they get adequate warning. But they won't get that, of course, from quack doctors.
1: I would imagine what the government would want to do is is crack down on these guys.
5: Well, it does, uh, naturally. And Punjab actually rejoices in a provincial-level department called the anti-quackery department. (laughs) The problem is, you know, cracking down is tough the the quacks are very well organized is there a quacks union (laughs) well unofficially yes right I mean they have whatsapp groups they warn one another you know as soon as somebody spots one premise being raided all the other ones sort of shut up shop and go to ground and you know as soon as one shut down another one pops up it's it's a very difficult problem to get to grips with
1: and and so what of the clients do they know they're dealing with quacks or do they think they're getting proper medicine
5: well, it's a little bit unclear. I mean, sometimes they don't know. Um obviously they assume they're getting proper treatments, I think, even if if they know the doctor's not properly qualified. But often they just don't have a choice. I mean, one of the interesting things is when quacks are shut down by the anti-quackery department, often the locals are resentful because they, they don't really have anywhere else to go. Um, public health care is poorly funded in 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 Pakistan. Um spending per person on on health is is barely three-fifths of the level in in Pakistan's big rival, India. And, you know, often there the, the simply aren't, at any price, the, the doctors that you might need in, you know, poor places, rural areas. So, so the quacks are, are, are the only option.
1: So wait, wouldn't the anti-quackery department's money be better spent just training more doctors, supplying more doctors, supplying information about what a good doctor looks like? I don't know.
5: Well, uh, ultimately, I think this is a reflection of how skewed government priorities and spending are in Pakistan in general. Uh, Pakistan obviously spent a great deal on defense. Uh, the army is very reluctant ever to allow its its budget to be curbed. The the newish prime minister, Imran Khan, he, he wants to spend more on healthcare and education but in order to do that a whole sort of restructuring of of the way pakistan is run where the money goes that'll that'll be needed and until that happens you know pakistanis will be at the mercy of the quacks it sounds like a real quackmire edward oh jason sorry thanks for joining us thanks for having me